HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Broadcasting live from Roberta's in Bushwick, Brooklyn, you're listening to HeritageRadioNetwork.com. On behalf of everybody at HeritageRadioNetwork.com, we'd like to send a special thank you to the Hearst Ranch, our biggest supporter and longest-running sponsor since we first started in 2009. Hearst Ranch is the nation's largest single-source supplier of free-range, all-natural, grass-fed, and grass-finished beef. Since 1865, the Hearst family has raised cattle on the rich, sustainable native grasslands of the Central California coast. The result is beef with extraordinary flavor that's as memorable and natural as the surrounding landscape. For more information, visit www.hearstranch.com. And welcome to A Taste of the Past. I'm your host, Linda Palaccio, for this half-hour journey through culinary history. And it's hard to believe, but 50 years ago this month was the first publication of Julia Child's Mastering the Art of French Cooking. Um, hard to believe because, you know, it just first of all, for some people say, you mean it's only been 50 years? <laughs> because it's always on our shelves. We're always referring to it. And then again, for those of us who remember, we say, oh, my God, it's been 50 years. <laughs> and last night I, I had the um, opportunity to go to a wonderful panel discussion in celebration of the 50 years of this publication, and it included um, such luminaries as Judith Jones, who was the editor credited with bringing her book to print, and Jeffrey Drummond, who was one of her um, early producers on television, as well as people who have written biographies of her, Laura Shapiro, uh, Dana Paulin. And it was just a, a wonderful celebration of Julia Child and the book. And during the entire panel presentation... There was a, a large screen uh, off to one side, and old uh, segments of her series, The French Chef, were being played throughout this panel discussion, obviously without sound, but everyone was mimicking her voice anyway. Ooh, you know, she had such a, a wonderful voice to replicate. Throughout the show, throughout the panel discussion, in every segment that showed on that large screen, there was always a glass of wine 
on her cooking counter or when she took the food into the dining room as she sat down to the table there was her glass of wine because for Julia of course you couldn't have a meal a proper meal without a glass of wine and the two complemented each other and my guest today will um, help I guess illustrate why that is so important and tell us a little bit about American wines and why there was for a long time this disconnect because Julia Child really brought that back to us and said this is how you should have dinner this is what you should eat and drink with dinner my guests today are Karen Page and Andrew Dornenberg the authors of so many wonderful books um, and their newest book is called The Food Lover's Guide to Wine but their other books are What to Drink with What You Eat The Flavor Bible which I love The Flavor Bible which is a, a bible um, becoming a Chef, The New American Chef, oh, I'm so many books. And I welcome them today to talk specifically about their new book, but also about American wine, because it has a history that a lot of us are not aware of. So welcome, Karen and Andrew. Well, thanks so much for having us, Linda. Thank you. All right, tell me, why do you think there was, as I said, this disconnect between Americans and wine? It, what, it really didn't become part of our... Our, our dinner table for many years. Well, it's so interesting. I'm so glad that you said what you said about Julia Child, because in some ways she was really an, such an important inspiration for the Food Lover's Guide to Wine. Um, in her book, Mastering the Art of French Cooking, mm-hmm. back in 1961, she matched a wine recommendation for every entree recipe featured That's in right. the book. And when you think about it today, I mean, we, as we, we mentioned, um, you look at through whether it's Rachel Ray's books or the Gourmet Cookbook or Mark Bittman's books or any of those, you know, great massive tomes that, you know, are loaded with hundreds, if not thousands of recipes, you won't find, you know, scarcely a word about wine pairing and, and what to pair with what recipes. And, and, and in some cases, you'll only find a handful or fewer recipes that even call for wine as an ingredient. So I think what um, is so interesting that's changed since 1961, since Julia was that the world of wine has become so much more complicated. A lot of those recommendations in her book were for Burgundy or Bordeaux or Rhone wines. At that point in time now, you know, we're at a point where go to any corner wine store and you can find wines literally from all over the world um, right. available right and, and from all 50 states for that matter um, which we ha- we have available now so it's become much more complicated and mm. cookbook authors tend not to write about wine and wine uh, authors tend not to write about food too much but it really vanished I mean it was not vanished it, it just really wasn't part of the American dinner table and and that you know that's kind of I can't quite figure that out I don't know if it's Americans puritanical ways or <laughs> or prohibition really put a you know a nail in the coffin i don't, I don't or what great was. marketing on the part of coca-cola and pepsi because yeah. actually if you look at the statistics the number one beverage that is drunk with the evening meal at an american dinner table is a soda hmm. Coke, pepsi seven yeah. up you name it yeah. um and it's sad because there are so many other beverages that are such better complements to the flavor of food and if you take a little bit of time to think about those beverages and we happen to think wine is the single best um, you can have so much, you know, so much better of more extraordinary of an experience, and it's not hard. It's, I mean, it's it's complicated. It's overwhelming in some cases to Americans to figure out what am I going to pair with with what I'm going to have to eat tonight. But um, it can be done. Well, um, Andrew, Andrew is Karen. I, I met it. Karen is um, you have uh, quite an illustrious uh, background with your all your degrees and education, and really. Uh, 
I can see delving into the research of all your books quite well. And Andrew, you've got the credibility of you've been there on the front line. You are you were a former chef and and trained with Madeline Common. Yes, I trained with Madeline and actually went to the School for American Chefs in Napa Valley. And it was a really incredible experience because here you are with this living legend, Madeline Kamen, and we were situated at Behringer Vineyards for two weeks. So we're literally right at the vineyard cooking. We're going out to the farms and shopping. And the fun experiment was every day we'd choose take a Behringer wine, naturally, and we'd taste it and they'd say, okay, how are we, how are we going to cook for this wine? And really uh-huh. bridged the two and learned a Not lot of the Not what we're going to match with our dinner, but how we're going to cook for this wine. Interesting. Right. And it was, Very. it was a good exercise because the chefs were all acid freaks. We want to add vinegar and balsamic and, you know, all, and Thai chilies and things like that. And it was nice to sit there and say, wow, how can I celebrate this wine? And we actually did that a lot for when we walked, uh, worked for the Washington Post for two years and really focused on food and wine pairing. We actually came out in our first um, column and said, we love food first, and we love the fact that wine makes food taste even better, mm-hmm. and vice versa. And so we really do live for the synergy of the beverages. Well, it's interesting because Europeans, this has been their way of life for thousands of years. Exactly. And, mm-hmm. you know, they, you don't find them drinking wine as an aperitif or as a cocktail. Wine is meant to go with food. And mm-hmm. But they think of wine as food. As food, right. Yeah. You have your wine with food. You have your food with wine. Exactly. Um, you know, in America, it was so slow. I mean, okay, we're a young country, okay, mm-hmm. but very slow to come around about this. And yet, there's quite a history of American wine. And it's funny because if you say to someone something about wine, you go, for, "Oh, French wine, yes. <laughs> oh, Italian wine, yes. yes, yes." You don't say American wine. You say, "Oh, Californian wine." You know, it, it, it's funny. American wine doesn't have quite the the panache that saying you know wines from other countries have and i think that we're trying to well I, that yeah, now, I think that's right? changed so much yeah. i think the real issue that got andrew and i going about this book is the fact that when you think of wine as you're saying you, know, you think of france first you think of italy first before you would think of the united states and the fact is that america does have this very storied history when it comes to wine in fact that's one of the reasons that the united states was founded back when the settlers came over to jamestown back in the uh, early 1600s it was with the primary intent of establishing wine growing region that would produce wine that would prevent England from having to buy its wine at high prices from France and Spain and so that is really one of the founding reasons um, that we're here today and um, you know back in the 1700s Ben Franklin was you know uh, sharing his wine making knowledge which at that point in time you know for uh, over a hundred years um, the settlers had been commanded by the king to, to actually grow, plant, I think, to plant, plant vines right plant yeah. vines and make wine huh. Interesting, and yet Virginia never really became a big, um, a well-known. It, it, wine it did. It just took a long time. I think this is very funny. I mean, you're saying like, where's the disconnect? And that that yeah. is a good question because uh, Virginia now uh, they celebrated the 400th anniversary of Jamestown, and the Queen came over from uh, England, and, and now we have 119 vineyards uh, in Virginia. So Virginia is actually it's one of the top producing countries. Uh, one of the top five yeah, states. states in the wow. United States for wine producing. But back in those early days, you know, right after the 1600s when the settlers came over, um, the vines were largely wiped out by phylloxera and mm-hmm. by other diseases. And um, they couldn't get the right match of the right grape right. with the right ground, which is what it's all about. 
Um, so it took a lot of time yeah. for the United States for things to kick off. And of course, you know, Virginia now, of course, they're, they're producing some really world-class wines, truly. But um, I think we had a much better luck out in California when the vines got planted and wines started being made that were catching Right, the and they were marketed attention. well. And of course, then mm-hmm. when they had that, the blind tasting with the, you know, the French, mm-hmm. you know, voted California wines to be even better. The big judgment of Paris, <laughs> 1976. But you know, it's funny because Americans were actually, American wines were winning world wine awards even before 1976. A lot of people think, well, that is really what put American wines on the map. But mm-hmm. it's not true. If you look back 100 years before that, there was a, a grape, a, a Virginia wine that was named the best red wine in the world. And it was made from the Norton grape, which is indigenous to the United States. And, you know, lo and behold, we're, we're winning these wine competitions. But it took a lot of time because America has this you know love hate relationship with wine. You know we went through prohibition, which basically almost you know wiped out wine right. from the United yeah. States, um, very sadly. But we came back from that. We, we <laughs> corrected our, our our ways and realized you know and before prohibition, truly um, there were a lot of alcohol related deaths, people um, overindulging, and um, so prohibition did prevent a lot of those deaths. Um, but once people learned moderation and realized, hey, this is just something that you can drink with dinner and enjoy in moderation, it, you know, now the United States government is actually, when it uh, releases its annual dietary guidelines for America's, Americans every five years, the two, uh, 2010, which are the most re- recent guidelines mm-hmm. that were issued, recommend that people drink a glass, a glass of wine that's a day, the trick or is two for men. Glass, right? <laughs> right because it yeah. helps you know in terms of heart disease in terms of weight control there's lots of benefits for drinking wine exactly i mean the health benefits i think we all you know have have had that uh, driven home that the, you know, the the health benefits of wine in moderation mm-hmm. and Back to Julia Child, everything in moderation. Absolutely, <laughs> even moderation. Yes, <laughs> um, and but the, but the I think the key, and, and you mentioned, is drinking the wine again. Once again, drinking wine with food, and, exactly. or, or eating dinner mm-hmm. with wine. Right, and that you know that certainly makes a huge difference. And we all know about Thomas Jefferson and and how he was such a proponent of fine wines and and fine food. And um, so as as America's history went on. Uh, we found ourselves with wine developing in a lot of other states as well. Right? Yes, I think it was a, as of 2002, uh, North Dakota was the last person to start growing grapes. So North Dakota. The last state. <laughs> last state, yes. And can they grow wine? In, I mean, they believe it or Ice wine. Yes. <laughs> yes. I don't think we've tasted too many from North Dakota. No, I don't know how widely distributed they are. But um, but it's funny, again, you know, New York State was also producing wine in the early, uh, mid-1800s. So again, mm-hmm. it was sort of things of California and then maybe Oregon. It's like, oh, we've had a lot of beachheads all around the country producing wine and very good wine is the finger lakes are some of the best wines in the country right now certainly Mm -hmm. the rieslings that are coming out so i think it's a matter of americans knowing what grape to grow just right you know you have to find the the right grape i mean it's not like france invented the whole thing overnight they took hundreds of years to find the right soil the right grape for the right soil and that sort of thing that's right and then getting back to the fact that we're a very young country and understanding you can't do everything all at once right yes and getting to know that there's regionality there's you know there's a there's as you say plant the right grape for the right terroir Mm -hmm. you know uh i I was at some um some food gathering in rhode island one time and and someone was, we said, we're going for a champagne tasting or you know, a sparkling wine mm-hmm. taste. Excuse me. Can't call it champagne. Right? <laughs> That's okay. And, I slip sometimes too. <laughs> and, and I said, 
really? You grow that and make that here? They said, well, as a matter of fact, we have the exact same climate. We're along the river. We're up the hills. We've got the same breezes, the same climate as, and then, you know, named a couple of areas of France. So it's just knowing... I guess knowing the area, knowing what you can grow. Absolutely. Yeah. No, it's amazing. You can even get wonderful sparkling wine in uh, Santa Fe of all places. Mm. Um, Gruet is a wonderful French-owned uh, winery that started in uh, New Mexico and is producing, you know, really phenomenal deals, phenomenal value with, through the Champagne method. But of course, they can't call it Champagne because it's not ma- made in the Champagne region of France. So, um, but but you know, if you go to Long Island, you can go out to Wolfer Estate is making wonderful right. sparkling. Yeah. And the Finger Lakes, I mean, they're, you know... Very and they're doing some great sparkling Rieslings up in the Finger Lakes yeah, as well. Yeah, um, it's, it's interesting that um, the different states, as I say, we, we, you know, still think of, I think a lot of people aren't letting themselves be adventurous in, in the American wines that they do choose. I mean, yes, it's, sure. if it comes from Oregon, okay, that's fine. Let's have a Pinot, a Pinot Noir from Oregon, you know, or California. Well, of course, then California wines became kind of priced out of the market, too, and back to buying French wine. <laughs> so, or wine. A- anywhere where there's a glut of wines, where there's, you know, much more production, um, you, can, you can find some deals. So there are definitely deals from different parts of the world right now, and it's good to kind of look outside. I mean, Napa has become... A world-class right. wine-producing region. Right. It's so well known that the you know they can charge and get the kind of prices that you used to only see uh, Burgundies and Bordeaux priced at. But um, now, now I think it's it's a fascinating time to get to really celebrate wines from all over the world. I think what what's hard for Americans is that they don't know how to pronounce them, quite frankly. Because That's when you right. think about all these grape names and all these, you know, most Americans do not speak a second language um, and when you enter the world of wine, you know, Chardonnay, Cabernet, those are easy to pronounce, so people tend to order them. Those are the, yeah. you know, biggest well, selling wines around. That's interesting. But when they you get into Moscofilero yeah. or all these other, <laughs> you know, interesting grape names, it's a little tougher. So. I'll take number 382 on this <laughs> wine list. Right. right. Or when you're presented with a wine list that is this, you know, daunting tome of, of right. 500 different wines I mean it, it's intimidating to, yeah. lot, to many people and that's yeah. when you turn to the sommelier and you delicately you know point to a price point that you're looking for and have them make a recommendation I think yeah. that's now it. that's in, in you, and you brought up an interesting point um, what we're going to do is take a short break and when we come back we're going to talk about the sommelier and about the new book okay so stay tuned Hi, welcome back. We are talking with 
Karen Page and Andrew Dornenberg, the authors of the newly minted <laughs> Food Lover's Guide to Wine. And I have to say that I uh, just got my hands on the book. It was just released, what, yesterday, day before yesterday? Literally, the hard copies just came out. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and um, I, I have to say, it, I was expecting, okay, you know, another big wine book and you have to plod through. We were just talking about long wine lists. I think, okay, a wine book, am I going to be able to get through this and think of some <laughs> questions to ask? It's not that at all. It. I love this book. It is. No, it's, thank you. It's like a, kind of like an encyclopedia, but... As I said earlier, it's a user-friendly encyclopedia. It's got you can you can just leaf or you know just pull up in any section, and all of a sudden you've got a different list and a different um, explanation. And Andrew, you were just talking about ah the time to ask the sommelier. You even have a section on sommeliers and how to deal with them, and and you list some of the the best known sommeliers and, and their backgrounds. Tell us a little bit about that. When when should one consult a sommelier? Well, of course, it, depending on if you're a restaurant that has a sommelier. True. Um, it depends, again, whether, yes, if it, uh, has a, even if they don't have a sommelier, they might have someone who really knows something about wine. I think the most important thing is to be inquisitive and ask a question so you don't, <laughs> sommelier's pet peeves is actually a little section of the book where you don't order another Cabernet or Chardonnay. Find the wine person who's into wine at the restaurant, if they do have a sommelier or not, and then say, I want to try something new. I always, and then say exactly what you typically drink. And again, if you don't want to, if you want to be delicate, simply just point to the price and say, I'm looking for something in this range. Mm-hmm. And then they will find something for you. And if you don't like it, let them know because they'll find something else for you. That's the most important thing to also remember. Is you don't have to love their recommendation. You probably will. But you know, don't hesitate to say, it's a little too this or that for me. Because they will then go pour it for the staff and have a tasting and then find something else for you. But really, mm-hmm. we found that, as Karen coined the phrase, we think she thinks uh, some years going to be the new rock stars. <laughs> and I think it's actually true. I think that's, it's their time, right? Yeah. Well, how, I mean, you, you wrote about, you know, becoming a chef and the flavor Bible. And then, yes, then you got into the wine with what to drink, with what you eat. What inspired you to really, well, I know, Andrew, you spent time, as you say, at the Beringer Vineyards and that, you know, ignited something, you know, Mm -hmm. about wanting to know more about wines. So how did you decide to write a couple books about wine and then this particularly? Well, you know, it was the most natural progression in the world. We never said that we were going to set out to become wine writers to write books about wine. But there's this great quote that opens chapter one in the book, and it's from Alice Waters and Paul Bertoli from their book, Chez Panisse Cooking. And the quote is that, although consumed as a beverage, wine is also like a sauce that accents and enhances flavor in food. Mm. And when you really take that to heart, you realize that if you truly care about food and you care about flavor, then why would you just care about what's on the plate in front of you without giving equal regard to what's in the glass? Because when you're consuming those two things together, they're really going to influence the flavor of one another as well as your overall flavor experience. So that was what led to us to explore it in more detail in our book, What to Drink with What You Eat. Mm -hmm. But in terms of our newest book, we really wanted to delve into the flavor of the wine itself because I think most Americans are really overwhelmed. You know, we, we profile over 250 different wines in the Food Lover's Guide to Wine, and it tells you what the characteristic flavor profiles you might expect of a particular wine are. So if you're not sure you want to venture too far away from Chardonnay, we'll tell you what wines taste like Chardonnay. Right. If you want to stick closer I like that. to something else. And you, you else. even have some, some price level um, categories, too, yes. which if people are a little concerned. Because, I mean, no chef wants a diner to drink a bad, cheap wine with a wonderful meal that he, slave, he or she has slaved over. So, 
you know, once again, going back to the summer, you want to, you know, maybe recommend something, even if you can't afford that, you know, wonderful you know, $300 Margot, well, you know, there's I, something else you can drink. I would say having had the luxury of tasting um, some very expensive wines, I don't think that quality and price are always correlated. Mm. I think you can get, we have a list in the back of the book of 150 wines under $15 any of which I would be happier to drink with any meal any day of the week than a Coke or a Pepsi. Right. Um, and, you know, it doesn't have to be expensive. If you think of a can of Coke costing a dollar and, a you know, we've got bottles of wine, wine in the book re- that are recommended for $7, you know, that's less than $2 a serving um, versus a can of Coke. Yeah, you're paying, you know, a little bit more, but your quality of the, that experience, your quality of life is so much better. Right. Well, I know, and, and I think... Um, I don't know if it's actually activated here in New York, but a new law was passed that if you don't finish a bottle of wine at a restaurant at dinner, oh, you, you can, you take, can take it with you now, yeah. right? Yeah. Yeah. It's wonderful. It never happens to me. <laughs> <laughs> I don't have that problem either. <laughs> but I think that, too, is something that is that encourages more people, particularly Americans, to, to order that bottle of wine. You know, if they were afraid, well, I'm not be able to drink a whole bottle of wine at dinner, you know. Sure. They can take it with them. Um, you know, it's we were talking about the history of American wines, and... Um, it was really, as far as wine production, yes, there were vineyards planted all over the place, but I was really interested to note that you you said that really the first commercial vineyard, and I mean, it's different to plant a vineyard, especially like you can plant vineyards in your backyard, you know, mm-hmm. in your back 30 acres or whatever, but the first commercial vineyard was not planted until 1857, or, or, or not planted, but um, got going, you know, the commercialization of, of producing that wine until 1857 in America. I mean, good heavens, that's, you know, that wine's not even ready to drink yet, right? <laughs> well, that's the other big myth about aging wines. You no. know, a lot of P- Americans think, oh, you know, Burgundy, Bordeaux, you need to age it for so long. You know, wine is meant to be aged. The truth is that 99% of the wine that's produced in the world today is meant to be drunk within the year. And so you want to drink wines young and fresh for the most part. And that's something else we're still learning. Uh-huh. Um, as Americans. And we do have guidelines in the book about how long you might want to age a wine because it, it d- differs. Reds, you typically want might want to age a very big uh, tannic Cabernet longer than you would something that's meant to be drunk really young and fresh, right. like an Italian Prosecco or something right. like that. Well, that that brings me to um, a, a page that you know, your publisher put out, or the publicist put out on um, some of the myths that you and we love busting myths on the show, but some of the myths that you that you do you know, put a rest to. And one that I caught before I even saw this list, I caught it when I was reading. I guess one of the in the beginning of the book or the blurb is that a lot of people associate wine buying with men, and they think mm, that men exactly. are the purchasers. Tell them that's tell me a little bit about that. That's interesting. Oh, well, we, we were happy to include this great quote that um, th- there was a study done that the New York Times ran um, back in 2005, and it was that contrary to wine's male image, women buy 77 percent huh. and consume 60 percent of the wine in America. Yeah. So, in fact, you'll go through the pages of the book, and we've got lots of female faces, great sommeliers like Belinda Chang, who just won the James Beard Award right. as best sommelier in America, um, Claire Popper. Uh, Emily Perrier, Emily Perrier, Emily Fiore, yes, and a lot of great women sommeliers, and it's nice because they have so much passion, and they're not all caught up in, you know, the classifications of Bordeaux or anything like that. They just want to. There's hedonist. That's the best thing about they it. Want they want you to drink something good want, with yeah, your meal. They right? want to pull out something really cool that you've never had uh, and set your world afire. Yeah, um, you. Um, 
Karen, you mentioned that every, you know, people think that you know it has to be an old wine. To uh, I think Steve Martin had that great line in his in uh, one of his movies, The Jerk, I think. And a waiter brings out this wonderful wine with all this flourish. It's a yes, a very nice aged French wine. He goes, "What? Why would I want to drink this old wine? Bring me some fresh wine." <laughs> <laughs> Everyone laughed about that. Steve Martin. <laughs> but I love the fact that that you you do say that it doesn't have to be. You know, an old rare wine to really taste good. Another myth that was brought up in that was that that you really can't judge wine until you're properly educated mm. in wine and take a wine <laughs> course, or you know, as Andrew as you did, go you know study at a you know with someone at a at a vineyard. So so true. <laughs> you know, we go to cocktail parties, and sometimes we're introduced as as food authors. We write about food. People take a step closer to us, and they're really, oh, we'd like to talk to you about that. When we're introduced as wine authors, people take a step back. <laughs> they they're hide their so, glass. Right? <laughs> well, and they apologize. They're like, oh, oh, I, I'm I don't know anything about wine. I'm sorry. Or I, it was like, well, oh, you never yes. drink wine. Oh, yeah. Well, I drink. I know what I like to drink. Well, then you have a palate. You have taste. You know what you like to drink. That's the start of a conversation. That's I think people in America still feel too intimidated today to really let themselves enjoy wine mm-hmm. and get great pleasure from wine. And and have conviction of their own taste. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. You, know, you, you know what you like. It's as simple as that. You don't need to be reading all the critics or anything like that. And again, that's what we try to make it very accessible. When In our chapter four, we list the grapes and the styles of wine and give you a, a flavor profile. And so if someone says, I, I don't know what I like, it's like, well... do you like the taste of strawberries or cherries? It's like, well, I do like that. It's like, well, you're going to like a glass of rosé. And rosé is not white Zinfandel. Rosé is dry and wonderful. Yeah, interesting. We, in the research for this book, must have been a lot of fun. <laughs> well, I, I think it was, uh, to me, it, it seems daunting as well. But what were some of the, the biggest challenges to you when you were trying to put this together? Well, the single biggest challenge is the more research quote unquote we do the less capacity yeah. we have to yeah. do research mm-hmm. so um, you know we, we learn to spit yeah. <laughs> I think that's why professional wine wine drinkers and critics and writers we, we have Don't a spit swallow. bucket yeah. near, nearby and we use it religiously because um, yeah we, we've, we've had the pleasure of tasting you know hundreds of different wine grapes and wine styles from around the world but um, I think when you taste as many as we do, you you can't swallow them all. Okay. Well, and then to have to call that list into something manageable that you mm, can really put right. in a book. I mean, it's you know picking and, and it's. And I mean, we this is the book that we wanted as as wine writers, as wine lovers. This mm-hmm. is a book we wanted to have, and since it didn't exist, this is why we wrote it. You know, we wanted to know how to pronounce wines, so we wouldn't right. be embarrassed by mispronouncing them. So all the wine descriptions start out with pronunciations. We give the flavor profiles: are they light bodied, full bodied? You know, high in tannin, low in tannin, high in acid, low in acid, and what to eat with it, of course, because that's what it's all about that's it's right. there that's to right. make the food taste better well you were wine columns I'm sorry Andrew you had mentioned that you were wine columnist for the Washington the Post Washington Post for you know several years yeah um, so I mean you, you really it was your obligation I guess you could say <laughs> to you know to educate people and tell them what to drink and with this book you really have I mean you've, you've kind of done that in spades I mean I think it's anyone who looks through this book will feel comfortable I think um 
in once again with their own tastes and going out and ordering something. Well, the authors of this book <laughs> told me <laughs> that's absolutely our goal. So yeah, I really hope yeah. that it, that is the case. We want people to enjoy life, and we think a big part of enjoying life is enjoying food, of course, but food and wine together. Right, and I think understanding that and understanding the history of of America, you know, American wines and how how new Americans are to this. Huh, Hard to say, but you know, the Americans are, but it's true. Yes. Yeah. How they knew they are to, you know, to accepting wine as a food, as you say. And I recommend this The Food Lover's Guide to Wine. And Andrew Durnenberg and Karen Page, it has been an absolute pleasure. Oh, and the pleasure is I wish you all the luck with this. Thank you thank so you. much, Linda. And thank you for listening once again. I'm Linda Palaccio, and this has been A Taste of the Past. listening to this program on the Heritage Radio Network. You can find all of our archived programs on heritageradionetwork.com as well as a schedule of upcoming live shows. You can also podcast all of our programs on iTunes by searching Heritage Radio Network in the iTunes Store. You can find us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter for up-to-date news and information. Thanks for listening. As a part of National Food Day, St. John's Bread and Life, Brooklyn's innovative and life-saving food service program based in Bedford-Stuyvesant, is inviting Brooklyn chefs and purveyors to learn about how the organization is marrying the procurement of old-fashioned, locally grown organic produce with the latest technology to deliver healthy, cost-effective meals to those in need. St. John's Bread and Life, located at 795 Lexington Avenue, will hold an open house on Monday, October 24th from 6.30 to 8.30 p.m. Visit www.foodday.org to sign up for the event.